0: Let's take our Bibles. Hold your place in Galatians chapter five, and we'll also be in Ephesians. Galatians, Ephesians—they're right next to each other. And uh, as you're as you're turning there, um, this is springtime. And uh, do we have any gardeners here? Any people who enjoy gardening? There's three bunch of liars where Franklin County, there's five. All right, cool, cool. Uh, there's some people and they have what's called a green thumb and you guys can grow things. And then there are some people that if you say, it's like, if you had, a, if there's a spiritual gift of killing things such as plants, I have that, that gift. And we have some confession in the room as well. But when you, when you think about, when you think about growing things from the ground, if you have weeds, the weeds sap the power of the plant. Crops, flowers, plants cannot grow as healthy as they could. They can't function properly if the weeds are around. And what we're going to talk about this morning is, is something along the lines of uprooting things that should not be there in our lives and the Holy Spirit putting things there that should be. And we'll go a little bit deeper. In our series changed to where we talk about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we can look at things like patience and say, I need more patience in my life if you were here last week. Say, patience is something that I struggle with. And we talked about pet peeves last week, whether it was people who talk too much, people who talk with their mouth open, people who take two parking spots, people who talk during a movie, all of those things that irritate us. And we live in a world of irritations and sin. And for some of us, we react wrongly. We say, I need patience. And when we look at the list in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, love, we could probably do with some more love, not self-love, not lust, but true love, joy and peace And patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control, all of those things. But sometimes if we don't stop and realize that those are not just things, those are not just character qualities, but it's Jesus. You see, when we allow Jesus to reign and to operate as the ruler in our lives, when we get him, we get patience, You can't have true patience as separated from Jesus, you see. You can't have true peace unless it comes from Jesus. None of us can ever have true joy. We can have circumstantial happiness, but we can't have true joy if we're not walking with Jesus. So when we look at the gift from the Holy Spirit, the fruit of kindness this morning, Let's remember that it comes from Jesus because when Jesus reigns in our life, he begins to show himself for who he really is. And you say, okay, Jeff, I came to church and we're going to talk about kindness. I kind of have that down pat. Probably. Most people think that. Most people think if you don't honk at the older lady carrying her groceries, you're kind. Some people say, well Jeff, I don't go to McDonald's and walk into the kids area and tell all the kids monsters are real and then turn around and walk back. I'm not a jerk. Like I don't, I I don't, I don't just go off at people for no reason. I I open the door for people. I, I, I'm faithful to my wife, faithful to my husband. I pay my taxes. I mean, I'm, I'm a kind. I'm kind. And what we're going to look at this morning is that the version of kindness that Jesus produces in us number one goes far deeper than simply holding doors open for people. And we're going to look at something at the end of this message that's going to be a little bit difficult to get through. We're going to look at how Christian kindness has literally impacted and shaped the world so that even non-Christians, especially in Western Europe and the United States and Canada, when we say things like it's for the children, protect the children, it was almost the opposite in the ancient world until Jesus came onto the scene and he established what kindness really was. So before we do that, let's go to God's Word. And this is going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 31. This, uh, we could say it dovetails. And if you're reading your Bible, you'll notice that there are what's called parallel passages. They're passages that connect in the Scriptures. So Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 31, connects uh, awesomely with Galatians chapter 5. So let's read the text, Ephesians 4, 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor were in the south and slander be put away from you with all malice be kind to one another here it is be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another as god in christ forgave you chapter 5 verse 1 Therefore, because of these things, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk, or you could say live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In this text right here, it's incredible because in the world that these words were given, it was the opposite of this as we'll see. The word for kindness in the first century by the Jew or by the Greeks and the Romans was hardly ever, if ever, referred to their gods. So for the Bible to come in the New Testament to say that God is kind was a mind-blowing revelation for the pagan world. And this word was even used in some circumstances in the context of being serviceable or useful. That's a great takeaway because the Christian version, the Christ-centered, the Jesus-fueled version of kindness is absolutely useful in every culture and every relationship. And the driving thought is that simply kindness, it uproots selfishness. Wouldn't that be good in some relationships, right? For those of you that are raising kids, or you... You ladies, you, you married your husband and you realize that he's still a kid. Kindness, what it does is it uproots selfishness. And then from that point, the biblical Jesus-generated kindness begins to restore relationships. And in the world that Jesus came into, it was almost like, well, I moved to Texas in 2005 to go back to school. And when I got out of my Jeep... I put my foot into the yard and it was like poof dust in the middle of August absolutely no water you'd try to take you know you go out you work out you come in you try to take a cold shower the water was still warm that's hot no water it was it was like a desert and here's the thing in Jesus's world It was like a desert of mercy, a desert of kindness. Because for some of us, we were raised, so you could say proper, like you hold the door open for ladies, and that's a good rule, right? Like guys, we, we really should. You show respect. We, we, should, we should be kind to the elderly. We should help them. We should regard children. We should protect children. And here's the thing. In Jesus' world, in the first century, the idea of kindness, as the Bible explains, it was not in anyone's picture, as we'll see. So, in other words, we could say, well, how does this type of kindness that goes beyond what we would even understand kindness to be, how does that really, how does that impact the world? Well, notice back in verse 31, the Bible says, let all what? Let all bitterness. To be bitter, it means to kind of have an attitude to where you're angry or harsh. It means that the default response is what? It means to be gruff. It means to be filled with bitterness. It's the story in the Bible where Joseph's older brothers, remember Joseph, the coat of many colors, like back then, that was awesome. Today, if you're a teenager and you go to school with a coat of many colors, you get beat up, right? Like, well, what, what even, you know, so here's the thing, fashion changed, but his father had him as the favorite and his older brothers, they were jealous. Like he, his dad didn't even try to hide it. He was like, that's my favorite. I mean, what are they supposed to think? They begin to develop a root of bitterness to the point that they could not even speak peaceably to him. A way that you know if you have bitterness in your heart is when you can't help but get upset with the person no matter what the conversation is about. It's a root of bitterness. And the Bible tells us that gospel-generated, Holy Spirit-created kindness is able to uproot that. You see, bitterness is the root that all relationships eventually break down. That's why the Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians to not be angry. It says in verse 26, rather, be angry and do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your anger. You see, many problems in marriage and in families could be solved if we were able to talk it out. Both of us confess or all of us confess, man, I was a jerk. Like, yeah, you know, you were a jerk too, but sometimes that makes the conversation go longer because if we've ever noticed that people respond to humility, they don't usually respond to us pointing out their problems without us, are you tracking with me? Without us being willing to admit ours. And if you haven't realized that, that's the truth. Because people respond to humility. In relationships today, many of them break down because we fight and we argue and then one person says, well, don't worry about it. Your wife says, it's not a big deal, bro. It's a big deal. When he just goes off, right? Like when he just goes off and does his like, his cowardly guy thing, his passive guy thing, and he just sulks and he goes to his shop and he just doesn't say anything. The Bible says, work it out, then go to sleep very practical i'm telling you the bible will rock your world because it's so practical i mean you have these these ideas of of the existence of god and these crazy deep intellectual issues and then you come to the bible it's like hey if you had a problem if you had an argument work it out before you go to sleep So where each one of you is admitting i was wrong for this here's what i did and i'm asking you to forgive me and then confess it forgive it in the grace of god then go to sleep. Because what happens in many of our lives, our relationships, our family, it, we just, is we just, we just say, I'm not going to worry about it. And a root of bitterness begins to build up and build up and build up. So the next argument, guess what happens? It's not about the car. It's not about the carpet. It's not about the cake. You've got all of this bitterness that's already built up, all of this volcanic anger. And it. what's the next verse? It says, let all bitterness and help me out. And what? Wrath and anger. Wrath and anger. You see, bitterness produces, we could say, a fertile breeding ground for wrath and anger. For some of us, we say, why do I get so angry all the time? The Word of God says is because there's a root of bitterness. And in the home, usually screaming and fighting has its roots in selfishness. Like there's probably been very few of our police officers who've been called to a home in Franklin County and said, I got called to the home and it was like the wife called and said, my husband's just, he's just being too loving. I can't even handle it anymore. Do something with him. Like, I don't know. Like, and an alien came and invaded his body because he like got up this morning and told me he loved me, me, asked me if I wanted to pray. And then he was patient with the children. Like, this is freaking me out. Like we don't, right? We don't, we don't argue. We don't, we don't have these big explosions in our relationships because one person's just like, you know what? How can I serve you today? How can I make your day easier? What can I pray for you about? And to where they even say, you know what? I appreciate your work ethic. I know that when you came home, the kids were absolutely crazy, but thank you so much for being a patient parent. I don't think I would have done as good as you did. When the husband comes home from work, I mean, ladies just say, thank you for going out and working. Thank you for that. If your wife, if she has an outside-the-job home, express thanks for that if she's in the home. And by the way, for moms that are that are stay-at-home moms, that is a job. A J-O-B capital. So, bro, if your wife stays home with the kids, it's not that she stays home with the kids. She works. And to be able to express that level of thankfulness, like people don't fight over that stuff. At first we may be a little freaked out like what happened to my wife or my husband, but often it's the opposite. We have, notice bitterness, then comes wrath, then comes anger, and then, this is, the Bible's so awesome, and then clamor. Clamor means simply loud arguing, screaming, and fighting. It means to wear the bitterness, has not been dealt with in the power of the Holy Spirit. We've not been obedient to God. And then we get mad about it. We get wrathful. And then it comes out through loud clamor. And then what happens? Slander. We talk about the people. Are y'all track with me. This is, this is brilliant stuff from the Word of God. Like you don't have, you don't have to know Greek. You don't have to know Hebrew. You just have to be able to say, whoa, whoa is me? Like that's the takeaway to where Slander, you see, it all starts in the heart, then it manifests itself in the emotions, the anger, then it manifests itself through the clamor, the anger, the strife, and then we begin to slander the people that we should speak well about. And back in Galatians chapter 5, and that's why I wanted you to hold your place there, the apostle Paul says, before a person is saved, there's what's called the works of the flesh. All these things, selfishness and anger and wrath. And he says that you bite and devour one another. Outside of God changing our heart, the only real result in a relationship is either a fake everything's going well or we have so much money we don't have to worry about the serious issues or we both work at different jobs and we rarely see each other so there's really not much to fight about to begin with but when the scripture talks about biting and devouring one another that is the picture of every relationship outside the love of christ And you say, Jeff, I'm saved and we don't have those issues. That is because the Holy Spirit of God has been greatly merciful to you. Greatly merciful. And then in verse 32, right before that, it says, put all these things away. The bitterness, the anger, the wrath, the inability to talk to people without getting angry. Put that away from you with all malice. And here's where the positive comes in. Be what? Be kind. Be kind to one another. You say, Jeff, what's that look like? It explains. Be tender hearted. That means when people have issues, we don't make excuses for sin, right? We don't say, well, you were raised rough as a child, so therefore it's not wrong for you to abuse people. That's not kindness. Being tender hearted doesn't mean, well, there was someone who did you wrong, so therefore you get to do wrong to other people. But what it means is that when people come to us, when they sin against us, and don't be surprised when you get sinned against. I love this statement of John Piper. He said, what's the key to being merciful? He said, we should be far more surprised, far more surprised that God has been gracious to us than we're sinned against. Like, if we live in a world of sinners, why does it, why does it surprise so many of us when people sin against us? Can you believe? Actually, yeah. Like I can. You would not have believed it. Actually, bro, I do. We live in a world of sin sick people and the Bible tells us to be tender hearted. What is that? It doesn't mean giving people a license to sin. But what it simply means is that us like the Apostle Paul, if we've been genuinely changed, if we've been saved... I really do think all of us, man, whether it was in a church, I was in my room Monday night, May 2000, where I got saved. It's like, I think every single one of us feels the same. It's kind of like this. When we realize the full weight of our sin, it's not his drama. It's not her sin, but it's me. Eyes of God turn on me. I think that we're like Paul and say, man, I'm the greatest sinner. God has been gracious to me. He's given me a family given me a job he's given me some level of health and here's the way that i've used that in the past in my life and we're just so broken man we're just so so brought to our knees that we just say god would you save me i want to live for you would you forgive me say god you've given me grace and mercy but yet i've been i've been so sexually promiscuous like you've been faithful to me I've fornicated I've committed adultery or I've done these things. God, would you, would you be merciful to me? I don't deserve it. And when we hit that low, when we hit that type of rock bottom, when people sin against us, we're already in our own mind the greatest of sinners. We've been to the rock bottom. And if we think that people are worse than we are, maybe, maybe it should call into question whether we've ever received the grace of God to begin with. Because being tenderhearted means I deserve nothing but wrath and hell and judgment. But God has given me grace. And even in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it says that the kindness of God is there to lead us to repentance. It means that for some of us, even when we were running from God for years upon years, or maybe that's you today, you said, Jeff, I've been running from the Lord. I've not been obedient this past month or this, this past year. I've slacked away from church. I've not prayed with my family. And the list goes on. But yet God's still been merciful to me. You see, that creates a tenderness of heart. Not a bleeding heart type of thing, but a strength of character to say, I deserve nothing, but God has given me his forgiveness. And God has put me in situations for me to be sinned against, but to be able to display, what's the next phrase? To forgive one another. And here's the manner in which we do that, as God in Christ forgave you. There it is. That's the gospel. That, in a nutshell, is the key to kindness, uprooting selfishness, and restoring relationships. There it is, as God in Christ has forgiven us. And not only that, it uproots the kindness of Jesus Christ. It uproots how we normally view people. Now, for most of us, the way that we view people, it's a friend or an enemy situation. It kind of goes like this. For some of us, we naturally view people as friends or enemies, depending on the amount of stress or fun that we get from them. True or not true? Like we see those people coming and we're like, hey, I'm going to go the other way. Naturally, the way that we view people is to avoid people that irritate us and gravitate to people that make us feel good. But the power of the gospel is, look at verse 1, chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God. Stop right there. That means that God loved his enemies. So if I'm walking in the Spirit, I have the crazy, amazing opportunity to be able to be like the Lord. Not so that you can walk around and be like, What's up? Who went to church on Sunday? Not you, me. Whoa. You know, not not to be that guy. That's the height of sin, right? Like that's the one. That's the one group that Jesus was like boot kick, right? I mean, hung around with the sinners and quote unquote in that crowd, but it was the religious crowd. The the arrogance that that he that he said, um, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But to be an imitator of Jesus and an imitator of the Father means receiving God's forgiveness. So, and don't miss this. It means replacing a selfish version of the way that we view people. And guess the way that I, you know the way that I normally view people? I'm a pastor, right? Naturally, avoid people that cause you stress. No! Y'all alright? right? Through the power of God, He enables us to go beyond that and to not only put up with, but to pursue people that are not easy to be with. Because once again, going back to the gospel, I'm not easy to be with outside of the grace of Jesus. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, we referenced it a minute ago. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I mean, shouldn't God's kindness in us being able to be here this morning lead us just to say, say thank you? To say thank you, Lord. I know for some of us, if we give gifts to people and you never get a thank you card, doesn't that kind of grind on you a little bit? Maybe there's a couple. The rest of y'all are so spiritual, I doesn't bother you at all, right? Like you, like you, like you give, you give something to somebody or you're patient with them or you take that late night phone call and listen to all the, you know, some people call it emotional vomit. Some people call it, you know, being able to de-stress. You you you're there for those people, but sometimes there's no kickback. And for some of you, the only time those people ever call you is when they what? They want something. You get drunk dialed, but they're not drunk. It's those situations. And by the, and by the way, let me let me just stop there. That's not on the notes at all. But if you have friends that are struggling with that, and they call you. Praise God. Praise God that they have enough wherewithal to look at their phone. And when they're in that moment, sometimes of more honesty when they're drunk than when they're sober about the things that really matter. And they call you, praise be to Jesus Christ that they called you. You see, it enables us, the kindness of Jesus Christ, it enables us to be able to imitate God by acting in love and showing kindness. Because kindness simply, it's simply just... It just pleases god and we see this all through the old testament kindness This is very interesting that in the new testament most I was studying this it blew my mind Most of the references in the new testament to the word for kindness are almost always associated with love and with forgiveness So you say jeff, how do I really understand what kindness looks like? through love and forgiveness Proverbs chapter 14, verse 21, Blessed is he who shows mercy to the poor or kindness to the poor. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17, One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. Proverbs 11, 17, The merciful man does himself good, but the cruel man does himself harm. You see, we see this model in the character of Jesus. I mean, here's Jesus. And by the way, I got to go to Sunday school today, and it was awesome. Like, I still don't understand, Fred, why some of our people in Rockwell Baptist Baptist Church don't go to Sunday school. I love it. I don't mind awkward silence. I really don't. But it was awesome. We talked about, you know, there's one point where it just made me think about Jesus spending time with sinners. Like, here's Jesus. Like, the perfect one. It's like, who are you hanging out with today, like, growing up in... And Hebrew primary school, who are you hanging out with, Benjamin? Jesus, thank you, right? Maybe he'll rub off on my kid. But here's Jesus hanging out with the rough crowd. He's giving, he's in kindness. He's being able to show his love to them. And there are two references in Matthew. One is in Matthew chapter 9, verses 12 through 13 for the note takers. Matthew 12, verses 7 and 8, to where Jesus quotes the Old Testament. And he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. See, there's some of us, and we make the error of saying, well, what does God want from me? God wants me, and we've got this big, crazy deal. The Bible says that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. Sacrifice was the visible thing. You brought your sacrifice to the temple. Everybody saw It didn't have to be a big show-off thing, but it was a public thing. But being able to give mercy, he says, that's what God truly desires. So that would be a good point for us at Rocky Mount Baptist Church to stop and say, what do we emphasize in our individual lives and in the life of our church? Do we emphasize the merciful grace of Jesus? Because that's what God desires. You say, well, Jeff, we see how that impacts even relationships today. Amen?" Amen? But if we had been back with Jesus we would have come into a vastly different world. And what we're going to talk about for a few minutes, I would ask you to bear with me because it's difficult stuff to get through. In Jesus' world, the value on children was almost zero. And the impact of Christ-centered kindness has literally changed the face of our world. In the first century, among all of the pagans that we have on record, there was a common practice of what they called exposing their infants. It simply means that if you were a family who wanted a boy, but you had a little girl, then you would take her and you would either hold her underwater until she died, or you would take her out to a riverbank or somewhere in the woods and you would expose the infant. It was widely practiced. It was totally legal. And even the Roman historian Plutarch said that the Carthaginians, quote, offered up their own children and those who had no children would buy little ones from poor people and cut their throats as if they were lambs or young birds. And meanwhile, the mothers stood by without a tear or a moan. The world in which Jesus lived, the world in which Ephesians chapter 4 and Galatians 5 were written in, that the historian Polybius says that it was so common in ancient Greece about 200 years even before Jesus that he blamed the decline of the Greek society on infanticide, killing the children. And he said it was, quote, decimating pagan society. One article says that female infants were particularly vulnerable to infanticide. It was very uncommon for even wealthy, upper-class families to have more than one daughter in ancient Greece and Rome. An inscription found in Delphi illustrates this quite well. Of more than 600 second-century families, only 1% had raised two daughters. And this was not something in Jesus' world that was in the closet. It was openly practiced. It was advocated by philosophers. Even though we know we've learned so much from Cicero, Plato, and Aristotle, all said it should still be part of the law to where parents can take the lives of their own children. Even the 12 tables of the Roman law says, and I quote, "...deformed infants shall be killed." And the twelve tables explicitly permitted a father, even if the little girl was healthy, to expose any female infant. The Roman historian Tacitus took the Jews to task because here's the beauty of God's word. In the ancient world, it was only the Jews who said it was child murder. And he stated that the Jewish view that it was a deadly sin to kill an unwanted child was a sinister and a revolting practice of the Jewish people. And even Seneca, these are ancient historians if you're not a history buff, said, quote, we drown children at birth who are weakly and abnormal. But then Jesus came onto the scene. And people saw for the first time what it meant to give mercy to people who had been born blind and to walk by someone who had been deformed he was a jew because you see if he was a greek or roman he wouldn't have made it to be able to beg and to see the man who was there and who was crippled and jesus gave him his health that had never been around you see even the jews who said we're not going to kill our kids It's child murder, it's a sin, it's a soul-destroying sin before Almighty God. They had even pulled back from being able to give mercy to people. This is the world that Jesus stepped into. And for the first several hundred years, the only ones advocating mercy were the Christians. And they were the ones persecuted. They were the ones who were driven into the the catacombs of Rome. They were the ones who were thrown to the lions. It was only the Christians. But over time, Christian leaders writing brilliantly. And for those of you that enjoy writing and God has led you to an academic type of pursuit, God bless you because we need good Christian spokesmen today just like we did then. And they begin to write and they preached. And when they preached, they were arrested and they were killed. And then other people would get saved and they would preach. And they were in prison and they were killed. And slowly over time, God used the kindness of Jesus Christ through his followers to bring the Roman world to the point that where Constantine, who was a uh, politician more than he was anything else, but here's what he did when he legalized Christianity. He, for the first time, this this is Rome. He provided funds out of the imperial treasury for parents with overburdened children. And then secondly, he gave the rights of property to exposed infants to those who had saved or supported them. And then finally, Emperor Valentinian in 374 A.D. signed into executive order in the Roman Empire that it was a capital offense to expose a child. But it all goes back to Jesus seeing the weakest in society and giving value to them. You say, Jeff, how could it really have been that bad? How could, how could they have really had that even though they had the conscience of God in their heart? Romans 1 says that they, even though they knew the truth, they suppressed it. They said, we, we know what's right, but through pagan philosophy and pagan religion, they suppressed it. They had thrown off the GPS of conscience. And the only reason why the Roman Empire ever made a step in that direction was because Jesus recognized the value of children. Now doesn't it change the story when Jesus was there and he said, let the little children come unto me? Doesn't it make more sense now in that world why the disciples were upset? Because some of us growing up were like, well, what's their problem? They not like kids or something? Jesus gave value to children for the first time. You see, the reason why we say things today that sometimes are not even said in total honesty because it's not always for the children, sometimes it's for the politicians. Just food for thought. But the reason why we say things such as it's for the children is because we have received a, tra- a heritage from Jesus Christ of loving those in society who cannot fend for themselves. And it's only because of the kindness of Jesus Christ that C.S. Lewis's statement makes any sense. And here it is. He said, children are not a distraction from more important work. They are the most important work And when Jesus, in that world of cruelty, said, unless you become like a little child, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, do you know what his hearers actually heard? Unless you become nothing, unless you become of no account, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But God, unlike the pagan families, shows love to his children. It was the work of Christians through politics that resulted in child labor laws. It was George Mueller there in England who created orphanage after orphanage and they brought in these children who had no parents. You see, Christians have always shown, historically, shown kindness to the most vulnerable. The world values what? Man, Raw power, money, physical attractiveness, but Jesus values kindness to the least of these. Christianity not only did that, but Christianity placed value on people no matter who they were. If you've watched the movie Gladiator, those are not just soldiers who were killing each other. They were convicts. They were prisoners of war. I was reading one Roman historical book and uh, it said that Trajan's games, just one particular weekend of games, there were 10,000 men and 11,000 animals. That's the reason why there's no longer beast of prey, as we could call it, in the Middle East because they were eradicated because they were used to kill each other and to kill men. The merciful treatment of prisoners of war was birthed from Christians. In Jesus' time, no hospitals existed, but you even have hospitals all over the world that trace their lineage Even if the name has changed to Christians exercising kindness. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32. You see how radical this is? Be kind to one another. Tender hearted people would have said say what? But the ones that God had changed. They remembered the carpenter from Nazareth. Jesus Christ who had displayed kindness. And they changed the world. Slavery was abolished. British Empire, through the work of William Wilberforce, to where ninety-five percent—those of you who have a Methodist background, or you're Methodist here today—ninety percent of adult Wesleyan Methodists signed petitions calling for the end of slavery. They got it through. Christians have even changed the world by the value that's been placed on animals. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 12 verse 10, whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 4, you shall not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, meaning you take care of the animals. Through the work of Christians, the humane society was created. In England, the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals was created through Christians. You say, well, Jeff, that's historical. And all of those things are good. But what do we do today? There's opportunities. There are challenges. And let me give you a couple. Number one, there is the challenge for us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ to protect the innocent in our country from abortion on demand. There have been... According to the latest count, over 54 million Americans. That's not worldwide. 54 million Americans who have been killed before they had the chance to be born since Roe v. Wade in 1973. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, abortion cannot be a negotiable issue because God loves life. There's nothing more cruel then we can do to lend support and encouragement to those who would advocate that the most defenseless ones in our society wouldn't have a chance to live. And if you've had one, or if you've advocated for your wife or your girlfriend to have one, there is hope and there is forgiveness in the name of Jesus. Amen, church. There's also the challenge to pick up the torch of what the first century church did well. And there's the call of Adoption and Foster Parenting, according to the Congressional Coalition on Adoption Institute. In the U.S., check this out, in the U.S., there are 397,122 children living without permanent families in the foster care system. The first century church found the children that were not wanted and they brought them in. We do have legal issues and sometimes it's a little bit difficult to work around it. But that's one of the things that Jen and I talked about before we got married. I said, would you be open? We want to have children. But even if we are able to have our own, would you be open to being able to adopt or to foster parent? And she said, absolutely. Maybe one of the takeaways for today is that we would look again at what the gospel means. And we would take serious these children who many times they don't live with adoptive or they don't live with foster parents who love Jesus. And many times there are issues that go along with that. But what an amazing testimony it would be that in Rocky Mountain Baptist Church that we would say, you know what, let's bring him into our house. And I don't care about being comfortable. I want to make an impact. And then finally, and third, we need to have the call to take up the righteous cause to fight sex. The sex slave trade and human trafficking. According to Force for Compassion, that over 3,287 people are sold or kidnapped and forced into slavery every single day. We have over here in Roanoke, the, the Blue Ridge Women's Center. Ladies, what an incredible place to volunteer. It's a crisis pregnancy center so that you can share the love of Jesus with women who are thinking about abortion. you want to get involved on a bigger scale there's the international justice mission where they use legal means in countries to bring people out of sex trafficking rahab's rope that many of you have contributed to and we've had we've had events here to where these precious ladies and these girls in india who have been sold into the sex trade they're making things and they're they're creating that they're producing things and by you buying that you're allowing them to get out of that lifestyle praise god And as the church of Jesus Christ, we've got to stop. I think overall, you know, we have so many... Things In church that we wish would be a certain way But may it be that we look at The big picture and say what God desires Is not sacrifice, what he desires Is mercy, and for us to take up This is an old school hymn Rescue the perishing, and it says Rescue the perishing, care for the dying Snatch them in pity from sin and the grave, weep over the erring One, lift up the fallen Tell them of Jesus, the mighty To save, and that's what we want to do In Rocky Mount Baptist Church, we want to pray We're going to have an invitation here just a moment i encourage you to to come forward and help us pray say god would you help us to be able to reach out to these moms that are thinking about abortion and god help us to be able to be there for families that have gone through that god help us to be able to reach out to these foster kids god help us to stop the human trafficking issue that we have god can do it Do you believe that and i do